Hyperno Goethe, German-Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hyperno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. Bonjour Rowett and welcome to this month's edition of Hiberno Goethe. I'm Kieran Murray, this time we're out on location in Dublin Zoo and we're here to meet the director, Cologne native, Dr. Christoph Schwitzer. So tell me, um, did you always want to be a zoo director? Uh, in fact, um, yes, for most of my life I wanted to be a zoo director. You know, there was a time in my life very early on when I wanted to be a dental technician like my father was. Um, and then I, I saw a couple of action films and wanted to be a stuntman. But um, I realized very quickly none of these would be for me. And um, I grew up very closely to a zoo, um, Cologne Zoo, where I come from. I was born in Cologne and we lived only about 15 minutes walking distance, maybe 20 minutes walking distance away from Cologne Zoo. So my, my mum would take me there in a pram when I was a baby and uh, bottle feed me in the zoo's Lima house. Um, and uh, I think this is how I came to, um, you know, really appreciate the sounds and smells of a zoo and particularly of lemurs, which um, uh, took me uh, into uh, my PhD then much later on and, uh, and to Madagascar. But um, yeah, from very early on, I then thought, okay, um, I think I should probably work in a zoo as well when I grow up. I do want to become a zoo director. And I suppose then you must have been very taken with animals. Did you have lots of pets when you were young? No, actually, no, we didn't. Um, not at all. We lived on a third floor flat um, in the city centre. And we couldn't really have animals. And, I mean, you know, we could have probably had a, a cat, but even that, um, I don't really like it when the cats can't go out. Um, what about when you were going to the zoo and visiting the zoo and stuff like that? Did you feel that, that um, this was the kind of place that you, when you said you wanted to work there, did you have an idea of what kind of job? Uh, I always felt very, very much at home there, I suppose. And um, um, yeah, what kind of job? Obviously in a zoo there are a multitude of jobs, um, not only zookeepers, uh, there's also uh, gardeners, you know, electricians, um, carpenters, all, all these different professions. Um, um, and, and of course the zoo director, and I, I don't know why, but I always wanted to be the zoo director because I, you know, I just wanted to shape my zoo as well and uh, and take the decisions on which animals I wanted to keep and all this. Um, so uh, when I grew up, I went to our zoo director and I said, what do I need to do to become a zoo director? And he advised me and he said, um, well, I would suggest you study biology then. Uh, and, uh, and so I did. In your journey that took you to Ireland, um, did you think, did you know much about um, Ireland when you were growing up? Was it a place that was in your consciousness at all? Was it 
you too, or was it the Troubles, or was there any sense, do you remember then anything about Ireland? It was certainly in my consciousness, not as a child, because you know I wasn't perhaps very interested in, uh, in global politics and geography and, and that kind of stuff, but when I grew up, um, it was certainly in my consciousness because there would be quite a lot in the, in the papers and on the news about Ireland, unfortunately because mostly of the Troubles, but then I remember very well when the, when the Good Friday Agreement was passed. Um, that was very big in the German news, um, as it was probably everywhere. And um, uh, I came here once um, in 19, sort of end of the 1990s, I think it must have been. Um, the zoo didn't have the African plains yet. I remember I went to the zoo and I only saw the lower part of it. Um, and at the time it was... Uh, Quite small, quite um, you know, relatively old um, cages and things like that, um, and uh, uh, it was quite obvious that um, not that much investment had gone in over the last couple of decades. Um, the rest of the country I enjoyed very much. <laughs> so, if you if you go on holiday, do you take your family holiday away? Is one of the things you always do on holiday is to visit the local zoo, or do you Absolutely. need a break from the zoo? Is it? No, 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 no. I never, I never take a break uh, from the zoo. I actually, I'm a zoo nerd. You know, I really want to visit other zoos, and um, I take my family to them as well. Uh, I always say there was um, a time in my first daughter's life where she had seen more different zoos than she had um, uh, months in her life. Um, so yeah, no, we we definitely go to other zoos quite often. I've probably seen about 350 different zoos all over the world, meanwhile. Wow. And, and so, um, if you're on holiday, and obviously you're just a tourist, do you tell the local zoo that you're a zoo director and you would like to visit, or do you just wander in as a tourist? Depends on where I go. Quite often I don't, because what happens, of course, is then they only show you the nice things, and I want <laughs> to see everything. Um, but, uh, you know, out of courtesy, in, in quite a few cases, I, I do ring them before and I say, you know, don't worry, I'm... <laughs> Just, I just really want to see your zoo. I don't, um, you don't need to spend much time with me. Just to bring it back a little bit then, so you were talking about your sense of Ireland and maybe the Good Friday Agreement being a good thing, but at that time, I suppose, the German reunification wasn't long uh, after happening in the kind of early 90s. Yeah. Did you ever feel there was a similarity between the German unification and the split in Ireland? <laughs> similarity is probably said too much. I think the... The two, the two histories are very different. Um, I always felt, and I still feel, it would be really nice to live through another reunification. You know, we've done one. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was quite exciting, even though I was relatively young at the time still. Um, I remember it vividly, you know, watching the news, seeing it all. Um, I actually happened to be in the German Democrat Democratic Republic in the GDR in that year, um, just for a few weeks on holidays to see zoos. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, demonstrations and, uh, um, and uh, water cannons and things like that. Um, really, I can see them in front of my eyes now. Um, and, yeah, it was an exciting time. And I think, uh, you know, if, if Ireland um, uh, ever, gets, ever gets to that place, it would just be nice to, uh, to, to live through another glorious time like that, but I do re recognize that uh, the situation is very different here and obviously many people may not be um, perhaps as keen as, as the Germans were yeah. at that time. When you went to zoos, 
in the DDR, in the German Democratic Republic, uh, were there differences? Was there such thing as a communist zoo? Did they have different approaches? Uh, I wouldn't say communist zoo. Um, in terms of animal husbandry, animal welfare, they had the same approaches. Um, you know, we we would we would have been working closely with the colleagues in the in the GDR as well. Um, meet them at conferences and things like that. Um, so the approach was the, was the same, but um, the materials were very much different um, because you know many of the zoos wouldn't have had access to the same materials to build habitats, to build enclosures. Um, it was uh, tricky at times. Um, the animal collections were amazing in some of these places because they would obtain many of their animals from the sort of Russian sphere of influence where Western German zoos would never get any animals from, you know. So it was a very different collection over there, especially at Tierpark Berlin, which was um, the equivalent to the West Berlin Zoo for West Germany. Tierpark Berlin was sort of the flagship zoo um, for, um, for the GDR. Um, and they had an amazing collection of animals. Um, they still have, actually, to, to this day. So they had amazing animals in a kind of Stalinist brutalist uh, architectural structure that they build them out of mass concrete. Is that, am I getting a picture there? Um, not, not only concrete, they actually have uh, some very nice animal houses as well. There was a guy called, um, oh, I've forgotten his first name, Grafunde uh, is his last name. He was the architect uh, for zoos in the GDR and for other things as well. He built the um, uh, Palast der Republik as well, but um, he designed a, a lot of buildings for Berlin Tierpark in particular and for some other GDR zoos. Um, and uh, some of them were really very nice buildings. Um, of course, they suffered from a lack of building material sometimes, um, so they had to improvise quite a bit. But nevertheless, you know, some of them are being renovated at the moment and are still to this day good animal houses. They just need to uh, go with the times and, uh, and invest quite a bit of money into them. But I'm just kind of guessing here, but I presume uh, towards the end in the DDR, things were pretty tight. And um, uh, you know those, those shops that people went into and there just wasn't that much food available. Or there was probably lots of food, but only the same type of food and people had to queue and stuff for food. Did you ever hear that it was more difficult in the DDR for them to keep the zoos to get all the kind of foodstuffs they need for animals? Yeah, it must have been difficult. I have, I'm, you know, obviously I haven't really experienced it living in the West, um, but uh, I've read quite a few books by um, former GDR zoo directors, and um, yeah, it must have been tricky times. You know, they had to make do, they had to improvise um, all the time, and uh, it, it still worked. They had excellent breeding successes, excellent husbandry successes. So you know, with their limited means, they managed to be really successful, and that's, uh, I think, um, the art of being a, a zookeeper or a, or a zoo person. You know, you, you make do, you use what you have at your disposal and you make do, and uh, if you do it well, um, you have very, very nicely breeding animals in your zoo. Coming to live in Ireland and you're here about 18 months or so, um, are there things that you miss about Germany? I mean, you're raising a family in Ireland, so obviously your children are growing up here and not the same experiences growing up in Germany that you had. Are there things that you miss? Um, <laughs> I've, I've been living in the UK, of course, before I came here for 14 years. I was based in Madagascar before that for a couple of years. So I haven't lived in Germany for many, many years, but 
there's still some things, I mean, obviously, you know, with the pandemic in particular, we weren't, we weren't able to see family for, for 18 months now. So that was a, a big difference and something we missed. We couldn't just hop over, um, which normally is very easy from here. You know, you, you jump on a plane at Dublin airport, you get to Cologne very quickly. Um, some of the food in Germany I miss every now and again, you know. Um, so uh, things like Bergische Waffeln, I'm really very fond of coming from Cologne. And um, um, I do, we, we do them here sometimes, yeah. but... Um, Non-German speaker, can you, can you explain the Bergische Waffeln? Uh, they are basically waffles with um, hot cherries and, uh, and cream. Um, whipped cream and you can make them here but it's sometimes tricky to get um, the, the right cherries you know and uh, we had the same problem in England already um, so for for a really good Bergische Waffel you have to <laughs> go into <laughs> back 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 to Germany so a couple of these things you know sometimes I think it would be really nice to have now but other than that I'm very fond of Irish food as well now. <laughs> Are there things that um, that you miss already uh, about Bristol? Um, mostly our friends there because same same thing really you know we, we just couldn't go back and forth we thought it's only 40 minutes on a plane uh, when we left for Ireland it's going to be easy but then you know for 18 months it wasn't I'm hoping that that will come back and then there's Bristol City we had season tickets um, for Bristol City which uh, again you know they played in front of empty stadiums for quite a while and uh, now I'm hoping that uh, we can go back uh, every now and again to, to watch a home match. Yeah, we'll have to get you a, ticket, a season ticket to St. Pat's. It's probably your local team. So, um. Well, I thought about Shamrock Rovers or something, you know, already. Actually, I took my son to uh, uh, an Ireland uh, um, versus, what was it now? Um, Serbia. Um, so I took him to that in the Aviva Stadium. That was our first football match uh, at 50% capacity. But it was really good. You know, the stadium is brilliant. Um, and uh, it was quite a different atmosphere here, even with only 50% of people in the stadium. People are just so passionate, you know, with every uh, attack. Everybody would just jump up from their seats. Whereas in Bristol, you were quite sedentary in the stadium. <laughs> so it was a very different experience, but a nice one. So we'll probably see more national games in the Aviva. Um, your neighbour, uh, the president, Michael D. Higgins, is a big Galway United fan. All oh, right. Yeah, I think he's a president or the honorary president uh, of Galway United. Okay, I didn't so know that. Very good. It could be rivalry. Yeah. 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 And in terms of missing things, um, what do you do? You miss things about Madagascar? I'm sure that's a quite a different experience. Yes, that was a very different experience and a very nice time of our lives. I went there with my with my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, and um, we lived in a tent for the first. 12 months, even longer, I think, uh, until we had built our field station in the middle of a forest in a very rural area of Madagascar in the northwest called the Sahamalaza Peninsula. Um, it was just, uh, you know, very, very different to, to living in any European country. There was nothing around us other than forest and lemurs and birds and various other animals. Um, the next village would be about two hours, two and a half hours on foot. It was a peninsula, so to get away from that, because there were no roads that were passable in any way, we had to take a boat for about two hours to the next bigger town. Um, but the next bigger town wouldn't have a bank or a you know big restaurant or anything like that either. So to go to the bank from where we were in our camp, 
it would literally take me a week to go to the bank and back. Um, and we had to go there to pay our, uh, our assistance, you know, and the people who built the field station. And we didn't want to have all the money in our tent, of course, so frequently I had to do that. And I had to first walk, then I had to take my boat, then I had to take, I think, three diff- two different planes, then um, a bush taxi, then another boat to arrive at where the bank was. And then because of the flight schedules, I would have to wait for three days and do the whole thing in return. So apart from the uh, very difficult travel arrangements to get to the bank, it sounds a little bit like a kind of an, uh, an ideal paradise kind of world. Yeah, it, it's certainly a very nice um, subtropical, partly tropical island um, in the uh, Western Indian Ocean. You know, beaches look brilliant. Um, of course, it's hard work as well when you, um, when you set up a field station and do a lima conservation project. Um, the reason why some of these places still have wild lemurs is because they are so remote and so difficult to get to and, and so um, unhabitable as well for the local population that um, the lemurs can still thrive. So, you know, all of that, of course, um, I always said it's about two-thirds survival and one-third work. No medical um, uh, facilities anywhere near you. You know, when you get malaria, it's you and your anti-malarial pills. Um, and when they don't do the job, then, uh, you know, it's... And is it uh, it's inevitable tricky. that you get malaria? Actually, I didn't get it. Um, my wife got it, um, and uh, she was really, really poorly. Um, and then afterwards, she had amoeba dysentery, which was even worse. You know, so after that, um, we had to go and recover in the capital city in Antananarivo for a month, um, just so that we had um, the physical strength again um, to go back to the field. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not inevitable, um, but it is quite likely, I would say, um, especially when you work at night observing lemurs because you're much more exposed to uh, mosquitoes then. And um, I really have uh, very little knowledge about Madagascar as a country, but I'm guessing as a sub-Saharan African country, there are political and social difficulties there too. Uh, yeah, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. I think currently probably ranks about 10th or 12th poorest or something. Um, it's an island economy, so it's difficult to get things there and, and, and off the island. Um, they suffer from that. Um, it's a very, very nice people living there uh, in 18 different tribes across the island, but they all speak one language, which unites everybody. Did you, did you try to learn? Did you have to learn a little bit of the language? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, otherwise you don't get by. I mean, with French, it sort of works in the bigger cities, but um, when you go to the forest, nobody would speak French either, or not many people at least. Um, and it's the ex-colonial language, so people like you much better when you speak their own language. Um, so yeah, we learned a little bit of Malagasy, which is a Western Austronesian language. Um, the closest living spoken relative is, in, uh, is spoken in central Borneo. And this is because um, the first settlers to Madagascar were Indonesians. They came on their outrigger canoes um, all the way over the Indian Ocean. And you can trace that journey back by looking at the different models of canoes all the way. So are they, are they Melanesian people more than most of the sub-Saharan Africans? Um, they, they have mixed, of course, over the years. So that was about two and, a, two and a half thousand years ago. And then over the years and over the millennia, they have mixed with, uh, uh, with African people and with um, Arabian people. And so you have a very unique 
um, type of, of people there. Um, in the highlands, they look more Asian. And in the um, coastal areas, especially on the, on the west coast, um, they, they look very African. Um, it's you know, very, very nice people, very laid back and relaxed. Um, but of course, poverty is, is rife. And um, that unfortunately also impacts a lot on um, nature because you know people just can't make a living and they have to um, uh, satisfy their protein needs uh, of their families. So they go in the forest and hunt lemurs. And that's what people do there and other animals as well. Um, they eat them, I presume. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. eat them. Um, yeah, they have um, to. I mean, have you ever eaten them? I've not eaten a lemur. No, no, I, I, I wouldn't. I've eaten a, a bush pig in Madagascar because somebody uh, happened to hunt one. They are introduced animals from continental Africa, and they're actually uh, quite unkind to the forest there. So, um, uh, unfortunately, people, not all people in Madagascar, eat the bush pigs because quite a few people are Muslim and wouldn't eat um, pork. But I presume it, it, it's part of their culture and heritage and part of how they live, eating lemurs. It's not how we would imagine it. It is, but I think there are alternatives and there would be alternatives. And one, one thing we do, you know, when I say we, um, I'm still um, very much involved in a, in a consortium that Dublin Zoo is now also part of since I've moved over here, um, in a consortium of zoos and... Um, uh, what we do there is um, we promote alternative livelihoods. So, you know, rather than people eating hunting lemurs and eating lemurs, uh, we um, give them alternative means of doing stuff. Um, um, at the moment in the area we are, where we are working in Sarmalaza, um, it's a very dry area um, during long times of the year. Um, so it's a, it's a very long dry season. And... Um, People, people's staple is rice. They always plant rice there. Um, and in Samalaza, they plant rice um, in a very um, not peculiar way. That's the only way it really works when you haven't got water. You know, you, you plant the rice without irrigating the rice fields. Um, whereas if you irrigate your rice fields, you can have 10, 12 times as much yield from the same field. Yeah, I have a vision of kind of paddy fields, the way they terrace them on the hillside. That, that's what but, people but, do in the highlands, where, where there's more rain, but not uh, necessarily in the in the lowlands, in the in the coastal areas. So what we are trying to do is um, show them how to irrigate rice fields from the little rivers that there are. You know, in some areas you, you can do that, um, and there are certain ways of planting rice that give people more yield. And we are giving people the means to do that by um, renting out for very low fees um, agricultural equipment and things like that um, um, uh, to, to um, you know, get, get more people to more sustainably harvest their rice um, so that the yields are higher and they don't actually need to hunt lemurs because they can sell some rice. Uh, we've also um, done a bit of chicken farming and stuff like that. So, you know, there are alternative means of doing it um, and, uh, you know, we're working on that. So let me take you back a bit to things that you might miss about Germany. And obviously that contrast to Madagascar was massive, but the contrast to living in the UK or living in Ireland is not as, as much. But are there things perhaps that you would have been aware of in Germany, like Ger the, the German cultural world, like how opera is a much bigger thing in Germany or even that German... Uh, the German education system or the German health system, are there things that you might miss? <laughs> um, 
Not really. I, I would say the education system here is is really good. You know, I wouldn't. Um, I feel that my children are very are good at getting a very good education. I have no reason to complain about that at all, other than COVID disrupting everything, of course. But you know, other than that, um, I think the Irish education system, as as the um, British one as well, are uh, in. Uh, in any way as good as the, as the German one, probably better, to be honest. Um, in terms of health, I mean, we are still at an age where we don't really rely that much on the health system. So uh, while we had the one or other experience so far with the Irish health system, all of them were very positive. Um, <laughs> my wife had an anaphylactic shock um, very uh, shortly into our stay here. And we didn't really know anything. We didn't know how anything worked, you know. So I called 999 and uh, I thought I had called an ambulance and a fire engine turned up. You know, one of these huge fire engines driving through the Phoenix Park. We live in the in the zoo, of course. Um, and I had to direct them. And, um, you know, I thought, oh, everybody will think the whole zoo is on fire. <laughs> um, and uh, I then learned that the fire fire engines and ambulances work together in Dublin. I didn't know that before, um, but they were all brilliant. Of course, they all came in their hazmat suits um, because of COVID. Uh, it was like out of this world almost, um, but very good service, you know, and, and they fixed her. <laughs> um, and then in that cultural space, I, I always think of Germany as a place where people are much more likely to go to the opera or go to a classical music concert, that part y- of it. Yeah, that, that's... Well, you know, again, I haven't really experienced Dublin from that in that regard yet because everything was closed for such a long time and only now things are reopening at full capacity. So um, I can't really draw a good comparison yet. Um, when we were still living in Cologne, we would have, we would have had... Um, uh, season ticket for the opera and uh, and theatres. It was a combined um, season ticket where you would get, you know, in one month you would get a ticket for this theatre, next month one for the opera, next month for for another theatre. It was called Städtische Bühnen Köln. Um, basically, uh, you know, they, they were all linked and um, highly subsidised by the, by the local government. Um, and so they had these season tickets. That would be nice to have here. I don't think that exists. It didn't exist in, in the UK either. Städtische Bühne. Uh, so it would be the kind of state... Um, yeah, city, city stages, basically. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to go to the um, um, National... Uh, what's it called? National, the National Hall. Concert Hall. National <coughs> Concert Hall, yeah. that's right. Um, I haven't been yet haven't been to the Board Gush Theatre yet. Um, all of that will come, I'm sure. Although I'm not sure it's quite as much Wagner or Beethoven no, as you might No, probably not, get. but uh, that's okay. I don't really need Wagner. <laughs> no, that's fine. And, you know, the beauty of living in a capital city, of course, now is that there is more of this here than there was in Bristol. Uh, over in the UK, you would have had to go to London to go to an opera, um, you know. So... Um, you were saying that you, here in Dublin, you get to live in the zoo. Is that a normal experience of uh, being a zoo director? Uh, not everywhere. Some zoos do that, others don't. Um, you know, Dublin Zoo um, has the, the director's residence here, so um, it's, it's great because I'm here day and night and uh, I, can, I can do uh, part of the night security rotor as well. 
um, and I'm, I'm here if something happens. Um, when you go to bed at night, can you hear the animals? I can certainly hear some of them, yeah. Um, we have our, our next door neighbors are the African wild dogs who can be quite vocal. Um, and then uh, on the other side, we have the Red River hogs. Um, they are sometimes grunting a little bit, but we can also hear the wolves if the wind is right. Um, we can hear the tigers and lions, gibbons, of course. Um. And some of the animals are nocturnal, so they're only active when you're going to sleep. Would that be right? Yes, but we haven't got many nocturnal ones. We, we, we have uh, a few crepuscular ones, which would mean that you know they're active in the morning and evening twilight more than during the day. We have a couple of species that are cathemeral, which means they have activity bulbs during day and night. The lemurs would fall into that category. Let me ask you, uh, when, if animals are crepuscular, so active at dawn and dusk, mm-hmm. is that because they, in the middle of the day it's far too hot to be active? Um, in some cases that plays a role as well. It's just, you know, a, a different a different ecological niche to be active um, in, at dawn and dusk um, because um, you know you avoid perhaps some predators um, but you also then have different prey that you can go for um, or whatever lifestyle you have you know um, so it's a, it's a different ecological niche. If you're, I'm trying to think you're at home in the evening and you're relaxing after a day's work and you're watching a movie or something like that and then you suddenly hear a sound and you can hear the wolves or something. Do you, do you have a kind of responsibility to make sure that they sound okay? If you, if you hear one and you say, I don't think that sounds quite right, I wonder, but I check that out. Well, I mean, you know, if, if there was something happening, um, something drastic, I, I would probably hear that, you know. So if there was a real problem in the wolf habitat, um, then it might, might well be that I would hear that. Um, um, and then I would have to, to go over or, or call the person who is, who is uh, on duty that night. Um, but I would probably go myself if there was something like that happening. Normally it's just normal vocalizations um, and uh, they, are, they are calm and relaxed and just howl a little bit like okay. wolves do. Maybe um, we go for a bit of a stroll now yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and have a look around. Yeah, we can do that. What's this building? That's uh, the old Roberts House, dating back to um, 1901, I think, or 1902. Used to be the Lion House, um, now it's the Reptile House. It's called Jurassic World. If you want, we can go in. It's very nicely renovated. Do you um, have a preference when it comes to animals? Is it fair to ask a zoo director if you, <laughs> if you prefer... Yeah, you primates can. over. Uh, um. I'm a primatologist, so I do prefer primates okay, yeah. over everything yeah. else, um, which I shouldn't say because um, you know then the, the bird keepers say oh, he has favourites and the reptile keeper. <laughs> and then, um, do you have a favourite primate? Uh, yeah, lemurs, of course. You know, I worked so much with lemurs for such a long time because that was your PhD. That was my PhD, yeah. and I lived in Madagascar, so I really like lemurs. Are they intelligent creatures? Uh, well, I mean, they are primates, but I always say lemurs are the Hollywood stars among the primates. They are very beautiful, but a bit stupid. <laughs> so, yeah, so, that's uh, the old lion house. Um, 
Dublin Zoo was famous um, in the 19th century as the Irish lion industry because Dublin Zoo bred so many lions and exported them to all sorts of other zoos. So many lions in those days in, in zoos around the world came from Dublin, actually. Okay. Um, and this was renovated maybe five, six years ago and really redone nicely and is now a reptile house. So, Christoph, what would you say to people who, um, who have concerns about zoos or who object to zoos? Or, um, I, would, I would say to them, come and visit a zoo, <laughs> because many of these people may have been to zoos in their childhood and then never again. And uh, I would say most of them probably don't know what work zoos do these days. You know, zoos are conservation organisations. They are not comparable to the zoos in Victorian times that um, used to collect animals either for scientific purposes or um, you know just for um, for show and pleasure. We are conservation organizations. Um, the majority of the species here on site are um, bred in coordinated conservation breeding programs. Um, we support conservation in the field. We use our 1.25 million visitors a year uh, as a joint force for conservation, you know, we try driving behaviour change towards more wildlife-friendly action. So it's very different to what people think a zoo um, is perhaps doing or what zoos have been doing um, at the turn of the last century. And, and so I would just invite these people here, um, go with them on a walk and show them what zoos are doing and can do. And um, at the entrance, there's uh, photographs of zoos from uh, many years back. The zoo here in Dublin being 190 years going. 191 this 191. year. 191. <laughs> but uh, there's one of people um, on the back of an elephant when times there was elephant back rides. Yeah. Um, I take it that practice has long since gone. Yes, that practice has gone, uh, you know, with the advent of health and safety legislation, obviously. Um, we wouldn't do this um, these days. We also wouldn't do it because of animal welfare um, considerations. You know, we, we can go to the elephants. Actually, I'll show you how we are keeping elephants uh, now. Um, and uh, it's very different to the olden days um, where you would have had maybe two or three elephants uh, in a relatively small habitat and then take them out and walk them around. These guys now have... Uh, we can go right here, yep. Um, these guys have a large habitat, um, they live in a natural herd structure, we've got nine elephants here. Are um, these from the, originally from the Serengeti, are they African elephants? No, these uh, are Asian elephants okay, here, yeah. um, these guys. Um, we used to have a, um, a breeding bull, but because he had sired so many offspring here in Dublin already that um, his genetic line was starting to, to be overrepresented in European zoos. Um, we okay. gave him to another zoo um, where he lives with uh, different females now. And um, uh, we are currently without a bull. We have a, a herd of um, mostly female elephants with two young bulls in there um, who will need to go to other zoos at some point when they grow a little bit older. As creatures, do elephants get along easily together or can there be tensions in an elephant herd? Oh, there can be tensions as well. Um, <clears throat> we um, Elephants live in a matriarchal structure, 
So there's one matriarch, uh, a female that leads the, the herd. Um, let's see if we can actually see them. We need to go around here and, uh, and find them. This is the beauty about Dublin Zoo. It's so well planted that sometimes uh, you have to search for the animals. <laughs> I would say it's probably one of the best planted zoos that I have seen so far, other than in tropical countries. Is it actually, um, in terms of acreage, is it a big space? So we have 28 hectares, um, which is a good size um, for a zoo. We could do with maybe one or two more, especially on the uh, African Plains side. <laughs> but um, I don't know if, um, if that's going to be possible. With the zoo being in the Phoenix Park, are there ever situations where the animals in the Phoenix Park, the birds, I suppose, in the Phoenix Park, do they come into the zoo? Um, yeah, the birds. Um, we actually have a, a bit of a problem with um, uh, birds on site here because there are so many corvids, so many jackdaws, uh, magpies um, in the Phoenix Park. And they find lots of food here, of course, also in the zoo. And they come and sit on our rhinos and pack little wounds into them, uh, and um, that can be uh, can can be a problem. So, uh, oh, there, there you can see our elephants. So these elephants here, these are uh, Indian elephants. These are Asian elephants. Asian, yeah. um, not only Indian Indian elephants are one subspecies of the Asian elephant, um, and uh, yeah, we have nine, seven females, two young bulls. Um, most of them actually born here. We, we have cameras inside the house as well so we can see what they are doing at night um, and they're actually cuddling up to each other lying in the sand and uh, you know it's really really good to see like they would do in the wild. And are elephants still are elephants endangered because of um, their tusks? Yeah they, they are um, not only because of their tusks but certainly um, that is a big contributor especially in African elephants. Um, um, in Asian elephants it's also habitat um, destruction, habitat encroachment by humans. Um, these are big creatures, they need a lot of space. Um, and uh, there are a lot of humans around now, so uh, it's getting tighter and tighter in many countries for them. I have a vision of, um, I have a picture in my head that um, elephants in Asia are much more used as work elements. Um, as work animals. Does that still happen? Yeah, that certainly still happens, especially yeah, no, in I India, but also in some other countries in Asia. Um, and uh, <coughs> that is actually the model that, that zoos used um, in the olden days when we kept elephants. You know, we would have kept them in the same way, chained them basically, and, and then took them out and, and did rights on them. We wouldn't do that now. You know, we think that uh, it's much better welfare for them. Uh, we know it's much better welfare for them to keep them in a, in a matriarchal, matriarchal herd structure, to let them do what elephants want to do um, and um, not interfere with them. So we keep them in a system called protected contact, which means that our keepers don't have to work directly with the elephants. They don't have to go in with the elephants. They're always separated from the elephants. Um, by um, what we call the PC wall, the protected contact wall. Um, so if we do foot care, for instance, with the elephants, the elephants would present their feet through that protected contact wall and the keepers can then do the foot care. For that to work, the elephants have to be very well trained. 
which they are. Um, and they they seem quite noisy. passive as they're here um, eating. Uh, are they are they passive creatures? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they can be quite active as well. At the moment, they're quite happily um, munching away there. Um, but uh, you know, you can also see them running around. When I when I came here, um, you know, I came here for a day together with my wife, and we were contemplating whether we should actually move to Dublin or not. Um, and we had a look around the zoo. It was a very dark, very rainy winter's day, but the elephants were all taking a bath um, wow. in the pool over there. It was so lovely to see and brilliant to see. So you know, we both said actually we should go here. Um, I was working in Bristol Zoo before and at Bristol Zoo we didn't have any elephants so I was missing elephants a little bit. Um, they are it, magnificent aren't they is, when you see them? It is them. just so nice to see yeah. them especially in that herd with the youngsters. Um, it's a brilliant sight and they can be vocal as well at the moment of course they are not uh, vocal um, but uh, when they start trumpeting uh, it can be quite loud. I take it they're vegetarians? Yeah they are vegetarians. Uh, they eat uh, the hair off my head. <laughs> Elephants are expensive, you know, and uh, because they are so big, they eat a lot. Um, they need a lot of space. If you have to send an elephant to another zoo, it costs a lot of money because you need to build a crate in the first place. You need to get that on a plane or on a lorry. Um, and uh, it is just a, a very big cost factor, but they are so lovely, interesting creatures. People really like to see them. Um, that uh, it's very much worth it. Um, let's walk on a bit. Yeah. Um, perhaps uh, we could go and um, see if any of the primates are awake. Yeah, yeah, we can. Um, you know, when it comes to the idea of a zoo as a preservation and conservation place, yeah. is it possible to rewild animals, if that's the right word? <coughs> um, yeah, we would say um, reintroduce them or restock the wild populations, um, that's certainly possible. And it has been done actually in many cases. We have some species here, like for instance the golden lion tamarind and the South American owls, a little South American primate um, that really only survives in the wild because zoos have um, bred many of them and actually reintroduced them and restocked the wild population in the state of uh, Rio de Janeiro in, in Brazil. And is it a huge process to train uh, an animal to get used to moving from life in a zoo to life in the wild? Yes, that is a very big and lengthy process. Um, they literally go into a training camp, um, into a large enclosed habitat in the wild um, and then uh, it takes um, you know, years sometimes to uh, to get them uh, adapted back to life in the wild. Um, you have to then supplement their food for a while, you know, until they are at a at a point where they can just um, be released and go. But there, um, but there have been successes in that. This way. There have certainly been successes. So the golden lion tamarind is one example. We keep the scimitar horned oryx here in the African plains. That's a species that was extinct in the wild. Oryx, it's not, what, what kind of creature is that? It's an antelope okay. uh, from northern Africa. And um, they were extinct in the wild and they have survived in zoos and are now back in the wild in a couple of places, in Tunisia for instance. Um, 
and in some other countries in northern Africa. And so they are only still there because zoos managed to breed them and managed to bring them back to the are wild. There, are there many animals now that only exist in zoos and don't exist in the wild anymore? Um, I wouldn't, well, luckily not that many. There are a couple of species that um, that only exist in zoos, like the Trevalsky's horse, although, you know, with quite a few of them, they have now been reintroduced into the wild, so you, you can see them um, at least in semi-reserves in the wild again. I presume if you're trying to get uh, animals to live in the wild again, you need a lot of cooperation of the of the countries that you're bringing them to. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't just do that as a zoo on your own. Um, all of these things need an international mandate from um, at least one of the range states or former range states of the species. Um, it all goes um, uh, through a system, you know, it's, it's usually done in conjunction with the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Um, and then I'm guessing um, you're hoping you have a fair bit of stability and not to be too hard on the Kenyans or the Tanzanians, but out in those places where the Serengeti is, you, you'd hope for a lot of stability. Yeah, um, what, what you need to make sure is that the threat that led to the extinction of the species in the first place is actually under control. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to bring the species back because then what happens is they go extinct again. Um, and uh, that is the tricky bit, of course, you know, because people are still there. They haven't gone anywhere. If anything, then human population sizes grow um, everywhere. And um, if these animals were hunted in the first place, you have to, to you know, control the hunting somehow. If uh, habitat destruction was the main threat, then you have to make sure you bring them somewhere where the habitat is actually protected and well enough so that the animals can survive. Um, yeah, so we're here now at the sea lion uh, pool. Um, are these, these are Californian sea lions? Yeah, these are Californian sea lions. So. Um, in my ignorance, um, I have to ask, uh, are they very different from Irish seals? <laughs> yes, they are. Um, so... Uh, you can, if, if one of them comes out, you can actually see it well. They are, they are a lot um, sleeker. They have ears. You can see the protruding oh, ears. Oh, can see them. Yeah, yeah, he's got, the yeah. two species yeah. of seal in Ireland, the grey seal and the harbour seal, haven't got protruding ears. Um, so um, it is quite a different beast, the California sea lion. Is it a smaller, more sleek animal? Uh, they, they are actually, I wouldn't say smaller, they are probably the same length, they are just a bit um, sort of um, slimmer, I would say, overall in their appearance. Um, and they do very well here, we breed, or we have bred California sea lions here at Dublin Zoo. At the moment we haven't got a breeding male in here, it's a group of females and their offspring. Um, but we have certainly bred them in the past. Um, and uh, we have them in salt water, which is also important. Um, in the past, um, zoos would keep them in chlorinated water. That led to issues with their eyes. So you could see they, uh, you know, often like like humans when you when we spend too much time in a swimming yeah, pool, we get red eyes. I was going to say that doesn't surprise me that you yeah. spend too long. So if you were surfing on Venice Beach in California or something, could you expect one of these to pop up beside yeah, you? Yeah, you could probably. Yeah. yeah. And these, these animals also love harbours, um, you know, not only the California sea lions, uh, 
I've seen uh, African fur seals in Cape Town Harbour all lying in the in the harbour quite nicely. Are they naturally the curious other. creatures? Are they taken? Do they take to humans quite well? Um, yeah, these these guys can actually be trained very well as well. In fact, they appreciate training, you know, um, and um, they are very clever. More clever than the lemur. I wouldn't say more clever. I think primates, you know, on the evolutionary ladder, are still higher than. Uh, than your sea lions, but um, I, I would say these guys can be more easily trained than lemurs. I can hear them there in the background. Um, do, do animals have languages? Um, they certainly understand each other. Whether you can call it a language is another question, but um, you know they have their sets of vocalizations that they use for different in different contexts, um, and they of course understand that we've done. Uh, um, a couple of experiments on that actually in Madagascar where we eavesdropped on some lemurs and played back to them vocalizations from other animals. So we played predator um, vocalizations from um, birds of prey but also from fossas which is a type of, um, uh, of predator that, that actually eats lemurs in, in Madagascar. And we looked at the lemurs reaction and we then also recorded um, whether other lemur species would react to the alarm calls of those lemurs, you know, and would react appropriately to them. So if, uh, for instance, you play the sound of a predator and one lemur species then utters an alarm call, do the other lemur species actually understand that and do the right thing, as in, you know, go further into the forest? And in fact, it works. It is the case. So lemurs listen to each other um, and um, they do seem to understand other species' alarm calls. And do some of the primates have more sophisticated uh, communications than just alarm calls? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some of the higher primates obviously have, uh, have uh, quite a repertoire of different vocalizations. Um, and when you observe them well, you can actually see in which context they are using those. Um, so, you know, again, whether you can call it a language is um, interpretation, but it is certainly a repertoire of uh, vocalizations that members of the same species understand and react to appropriately. That's the new snow leopard habitat. Um, the snow leopards have, in fact, just moved over. I imagine places where they live in the wild are very remote. Yeah, very remote. Um, you can study snow leopards in the wild for years and never actually see an animal. Um, I've met a guy who did his PhD about snow leopards, um, and I said, and is it, is it great to see them in the wild? And he said, well, I've worked two years on them and I've never seen one. Oh. <laughs> so people track them um, with radio collars, but uh, it's really a, a remote area. So yeah, here we've got the uh, orangutans. Let's see if any are out. They can climb over these structures and actually move from that island over. Oh, I can see that, that yeah. Over there, yeah. Which is quite a novel way of um, of keeping them and showing them. And they share their habitat with the gibbons. They share with the gibbons. Yeah. Got, uh, are they are they friends? Yeah, they are friends. Yeah, mm -hmm. we've got a pair of Siamang gibbons here with their baby. I presume in this space where um, you actually have the ropes coming over the pathway, 
where the orangutans uh, and gibbons they climb over those ropes. Yes. <clears throat> they don't. They don't fall or they don't jump down to no, people, they've, do they? they've never fallen. Um, it's too far for them to jump down. Okay. So yeah. it's, it's uh, really yeah. well spaced and well measured. Um, so that the orangutans and the gibbons are safe, they okay. can they can use these things. But um, and as a, as, a as a zoo director, you don't get nervous when they're swinging over over the. No, not at all. No, I'm very used to it by now. <laughs> um, now all all these habitats are designed in a way to mimic nature to really show um, how these animals are living and would be living in the wild. Um, but also obviously contain them in such a way that they don't just make it off to the Phoenix Park. And I can see where lots of the um, spaces would mimic the wild, would mimic the surroundings of the savannah or wherever it is they come from. But um, what about climate? Does it, do they adapt over generations to climate? Um, they, they do adapt obviously to the climate where they uh, evolve in, but um, that doesn't mean that we can't keep them here if these animals are tropical. We just need to make sure that uh, if temperature here goes below zero, for example, um, we need to move them inside because we don't want them to get too cold. Um, some tropical animals doesn't grow winter fur, for example. You know, the okapi would be one good example. The okapi is a type of forest giraffe from the Democratic Republic of Congo and they don't grow any winter fur when it gets cold because they don't need to, of course, um, in the wild where they come from. So what we need to do is when it gets colder here, we only um, let them outside for a couple of hours a day and then move them back inside. And when it gets warmer in the spring, they can roam outside again for the majority of the and day. Are there any signs of animals evolving since they were first kept in zoos to cope with a more um, temperate European climate. The, the, the giraffes haven't gotten hairier. <laughs> no, that's uh, well. You know that might, if you if you um, extrapolated the whole thing by a couple of thousand years, it oh, okay, may well yeah, happen. Yeah. But uh, time time frames haven't been long enough for yeah. this. Um, so if we come back in a, in a thousand years, we, we we might see a hairier giraffe. If uh, well, if you continue, I, I think it's unlikely, but. Um, uh, there, there is some what we would call unwanted selection. Um, so, of course, you know, if you keep animals in an environment that is different to what they have evolved in, um, then they have different advantages and different different disadvantages to what they would be used to in the wild. Let's see if we can actually see the gibbons here. Yes, we can. Um, oh, there they are. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Um. So, you know, over time, are we breeding animals that are more timid, more friendly than the animals would be in the wild because we work with them here? I don't know. You know, there may well be an element of selection that we are exposing these populations to. Um, so the given, and again, forgive my ignorance, it's like a small chimpanzee. Um, if, if you if you like, um, I mean they are quite different, but uh, they are still apes. So you, know, you can see these very long arms um, where they uh, leap from tree to tree. And here they can use our rope bridges. There's the baby. Again, they look quite curious creatures, don't they? The way they the fur, very heavy black fur. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They, they have. And these guys are large. They really vocalise. Um, uh, you know, they go for it, and um, 
I can't tell you exactly from the top of my head how many species of gibbon there are. I think 18 or 19 different species um, uh, in the wild and they all have different vocalizations. And you can actually, if you are a gibbon expert, you can hear from the vocalization which species it is. And the males are different to the females as well. Yeah, they are very curious. Um, do we have lemurs in Dublin Zoo? Yes, we do have two okay. species of lemurs. We've actually passed them I'll already. Oh, well then should we, we have a look and see? Yeah, we can go back them. to them. <coughs> Not yet enough for my liking. I wish we had more. <laughs> That's uh, for the future. And then, different, I presume there's different species of lemur too. Yeah, uh, there are currently a hundred and... 11 species of lemur recognized. And can you tell them apart by their calls? Uh, no, I, well, some of them I can, but um, many of them I couldn't. Um, some of them are cryptic species, some of them are not very, uh, very vocal at all. Um, you can't even, you know, when you take the sportive lemurs, for instance, which is one family of lemurs, there are 26 different species, actually 25 different species now, in this family and they are what we call cryptic species they are all nocturnal all little brown jobs and they don't really need to um, look different because at night you know you don't see anything anyway um, so even those that live sympatrically which means that two species live in the same area um, you can't really often distinguish um, between one species and the other by simply looking at them and if somebody just presented all 25 species to me on a plate, I wouldn't be able to say this is this and this is that. Um, you have to actually take uh, some uh, samples and analyze them genetically to find, oh, these have, these have different numbers of chromosomes, um, so there must be two different species. And how is it that lemurs... So probably all inside, because it's your imagination. Um, I think it's because, uh, you know, when my... When my mum took me into the lima house at Cologne Zoo and bottle fed me in there, I, th I think I, you know, the, the, the smells of lemurs and the sounds of lemurs now give me a warm feeling of home. <laughs> and uh, these are red ruffed lemurs. These are critically endangered lemurs from east, northeast um, Madagascar, from a, from a place called the Majuala Peninsula. Majuala translates into the eye of the forest. Masu is eye and Ala is forest. And is the forest under threat? Very much so, yes. Unfortunately, uh, in Madagascar we've already lost about more than 80% of the original forest cover um, since human arrival on the island about two and a half thousand years ago. And the remainder is also under severe threat. Um, um, when I first started working in Madagascar, um, that was in 2003, there were about 18 million people living on the island. Um, now, you know, just um, not even 20 years later, there are 27 million people working on the island. Um, and um, if you imagine that increase, which is a dramatic increase in population size, without much investment into traffic infrastructure, you know, uh, without much investment into novel methods of agriculture, 
it is really a huge, huge strain on all ecosystems. So the forest is um, reducing by the day and um, there isn't much left. So it's a very interesting situation because those 111 species of lemur are relatively easy to see. When you go to Madagascar, let's say for two weeks on holidays, you can easily just go and see 20 different lemur species. Nowhere else on the planet you can do that with primates. When you go to the Amazon, you are lucky to see one species of primate. Um, in Madagascar, you, you can see them all because every little bit of forest is just small, you know, and um, it's basically like driving on the M50 and then you get off your car and in some place there's a little bit of forest and there's one particular species of lemur next to the road. Um, and that's how we, it is. When we were first talking about these, I foolishly thought they were a species of bear. Uh, again, uh, showing my ignorance. <laughs> but um, can you describe them a little bit, Christoph? Because they have got a long face, don't they? Yes, they have a long face. Uh, <coughs> look a bit like a like a cat or like a dog. Uh, when you just look at their faces, they are primates, of course. They have uh, lots of primate traits, but um, actually some some ancient traits as well. So lemurs, uh, when you look at their dentition, um, when they open their mouth, you can see they have a a tooth comb, um, which means that um, their lower jaw, the incisors and canines, actually stick out horizontally and that's what they're using to groom themselves and to clean their fur. Um, they also have a claw on the on the second toe, uh, which they also use to, uh, to clean their fur with. Um, and um, these are traits that you wouldn't see in more modern primates. So these lineages of lemurs have evolved um, very early in the primate evolution, in the primate radiation. And um, <clears throat> Madagascar is an island, of course, 400 kilometers off the coast of East Africa. Um, and uh, lemurs made it there, but modern primates didn't. So the lemurs really had all the space for themselves to evolve into 111, probably more than that, but we don't know them all yet, um, different species and subspecies. So with um, these species being um, threatened with extinction, I suppose, because of their, their, their losing their homeland. Um, is it part of the nature of a zoo director to be an environmental campaigner as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, this is a big part of uh, what the job of a, of a zoo and also of its director is. Um, you know, we, um, in the past, we sometimes asked ourselves, are we campaigning organizations? I, I think absolutely we are, you know, and uh, this is one thing I want to do here over the, over the next um, couple of years. We've just um, published a strategic plan for the next, year, next 10 years that takes us up to our bicentennial anniversary in 2031. Um, and one, uh, the big threat um, through this plan is really to change paradigms um, and moving Dublin Zoo from a zoo that, um, that supports conservation financially to a fully-fledged conservation organization that also runs a zoo. So yes, absolutely, I understand myself as an environmental campaigner as well. And as I already said, um, you know, I want, I want to use our 1.25 million visitors a year here when I have them captive on site for three hours um, to not only pass on our messages about conservation, and to tell people about the plight of some of these species in the wild, but to actually try and change people's behavior towards more wildlife-friendly actions. And this is what zoos can do and have been doing um, since about 
you know, for, for quite a while already, there are some very good examples from um, Australia and New Zealand, where zoos have um, um, <clears throat> managed to change um, some behaviors. For instance, um, uh, there's a good example at Auckland Zoo, uh, who have almost single-handedly managed to change um, the ice cream suppliers in New Zealand from using any old palm oil to now just using um, sustainably sourced palm oil. And that's brilliant, you know, that's consumer power. Um, Auckland Zoo just happened to buy a lot of ice cream from their supplier because, you know, in the summer many people who go there want to buy their children an ice cream. And they said, would you like to work with us on this? The ice cream supplier said, yes, of course, we will. Um, and then every other, uh, you know, all the other ice cream suppliers also went um, sustainable palm oil. Um, and that's brilliant. And I think, you know, Dublin Zoo has the same... Um, the same consumer power and the same lobby behind it. Um, people really um, love Dublin Zoo, which we have seen in the Save Dublin Zoo campaign very nicely that we had to run back in uh, at the tail end of 2020 uh, when we had been closed for such a long time, and um, and the people um, <coughs> overwhelmingly, you know, came to to help us and um, and bailed us out, which was brilliant to see. I presume trying to get food supplies uh, into animals uh, can be a difficult thing. Do so many animals only eat food, only eat very exotic food that has to be sourced from far away? You know, with many of the exotic fruits, for instance, um, obviously we wouldn't feed a lemur fruits from Madagascar. Um, interestingly, we wouldn't feed a lemur fruits at all um, because um, even if a species like this one here, the red ruffed lemur, we would call highly frugivorous, so they would eat lots of fruits in the wild in Madagascar. However, the fruits they, they eat in Madagascar are very different to what we would call fruit here in, in Ireland. You know, they don't eat bananas, they don't eat strawberries or, or raspberries. Um, they eat little, very often unripe berries from, from trees, you know, and I've, I've tried some of them myself when I was based there. They're absolutely unpalatable. <laughs> it's a horrid experience, um, you know, but, but this is what, what they eat in the wild. Um, and, um, so finding know, even, an equivalent then? Yes, a, we, uh, we, we need to look beyond what we call fruits here, so we don't feed them bananas and raspberries. We actually feed them leafy green vegetables which have the same <coughs> nutrients when you when you look at it closely than the, than the foods they would eat in the wild. Is it broccoli? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. broccoli for instance. Okay. You know. I can see them eating a bit of broccoli there. <laughs> yes, every now and again they would get a little bit of fruit, but that is usually as a treat, you know, when we want to get yeah. medicine into them. Um, yeah, sugary stuff is, is quite good to hide medicine um, sometimes. Like That's one children. of the, the last things I want to ask you is when people come to a zoo, <laughs> and there's an education part of the zoo and is mm -hmm. encouraging them, trying to encourage people to be more conscious of animals in the wild. Would a zoo encourage people to visit places like the Serengeti or visit Madagascar? Is that, would that be a good thing? Um, in some places it would be a good thing. So Madagascar, for example, that's actually a good example because um, Madagascar only gets about maybe three, four hundred thousand international tourists a year, which is tiny, you know, for a country with 27 million people living there. You know, Madagascar could really benefit from more international tourism. Um, and uh, the, the, the forests, uh, the habitats are by no means yet at carrying capacity when it comes to tourism. So in that case, we would really want to promote 
people going to these places and actually spending some money there because ultimately it helps the wildlife um, <clears throat> when people living locally see okay these animals are actually worth more to us kept alive in the forest than eaten uh, whereas other places on this planet may already be quite overcrowded and I would be a bit reluctant to send more people in you know um, the Galapagos, well, you know, it's it's well controlled, I, I have to say, but, um, you know, there are some countries that um, probably struggle a bit already with um, with tourism, so you need to look at individual cases there. Um, okay, then, that was a fascinating opportunity to get to talk to you and to get to see the zoo, and um, Good, I, just to wrap up, I suppose, I did want to bring you all the way back to the German world, Yeah. and... Um, are there any recommendations you would have for um, food or for uh, or for a drink or for anything that's, um, that you might miss about Germany that you would recommend? What is it? Are you going to introduce the Bergische Sahne? Bergische Waffeln? Yeah. It, should the zoo have the Bergische Waffeln? Probably not. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a strong believer in eating local, you know, and uh, I think it... it it's better if you if you try to exploit what you have here and, and do that well rather than to imitate other things. Of course, sometimes we do, you know, and we might offer Asian street food during wild lights and so on. Um, but it's usually, we, you know, we are trying to make it as authentic as possible by having the people who do it then also coming from these areas. Um, so uh, no, I, I won't. I won't offer Bergische Waffeln here. I don't think, uh, even though every now and again I like one myself, uh, and we try to to make them here ourselves in the in the house. Um, and then um, for a beer, are, are you more committed now to drinking Guinness in Dublin than <laughs> than importing Kölsch? From, from Köln? I've never actually imported Köln. You know, <laughs> I think that's again, you know, when you are there, it's a different feeling. You enjoy being there and having it, and when you drink it somewhere else, it's not the same, is it? You know, so I would rather drink it. So, I hope you enjoyed our special edition in the zoo. Feeling dank to Christoph and all the staff at Dublin Zoo.